Well, friends, what a delight and a privilege it is to gather with you today to worship the risen Christ. Isn't it an amazing thing to think about that there are millions of Christians all over the world who gather on the first day of the week, week after week, as the gathered people of God to celebrate the risen Lord Jesus. I know it seems like just another routine Sunday, in some ways it is, but in other ways there's no such thing as a routine Sunday. Never underestimate the way in which the Spirit of God works among his people as we gather together to fellowship and to confess these truths and to sing these wonderful things and to hear God's word teached or taught and preached and to gather around the Lord's table. It's an incredible privilege and we should never take it for granted. In light of that, please stand for the reading of God's word as we get to dine on one of the highest Christological passages anywhere in the New Testament, perhaps the most articulate, detailed, majestic descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ ever penned. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Paul writes, he, Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in your mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, I um, came across a fascinating podcast. I guess you could call it a 
a TV show of sorts the other day called Uncommon Knowledge, hosted by Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institute. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that, um, but it's a fantastic podcast, TV show. And what piqued my interest was the three guests that he was interviewing and the topic for their discussion. He had some very serious, um, credentialed scholars in their respective fields to talk about a very important issue. Those scholars were um, Tom Holland, not to be confused with Spider-Man, a different um, Tom Holland, noted historian Tom Holland, and then noted author and journalist Douglas Murray, was the second commentator, and then philosopher of science, Stephen Meyer, was there. And they were in this gorgeous house in Italy. It looked like a great location for this kind of discussion. An interview, and the topic for their discussion was, does God exist? From three great thinkers, three heavyweights, Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, and Stephen Meyer. I couldn't wait to watch. I think it was just released last week. It was both fascinating and extremely frustrating. I would encourage you to watch it. Fascinating because you really don't get three more articulate people than these three individuals, and you don't have a more important topic than, does God exist? Could anything be more significant than seeking to answer that question? Does God exist? Um, they talked about a lot of things. Sadly, they didn't really talk about that as much. Um, let's see. This is happening again. Nate Libby, let's see. We, we, we determined, let's see if this connection works. Okay. See if that helps. Um, they talked about a lot of things. It was obvious that two of the guests, Tom Holland and Douglas Murray, were very reluctant to express and articulate their view as it relates to the existence of God. So they really talked all around it without actually landing on their views related to that question. If you know a little bit about Tom Holland and Douglas Murray, it's kind of obvious because they're both atheists, which makes it kind of interesting as to why Peter Robinson would have asked them to be on the show. In fact, Douglas Murray, again, incredibly articulate, great thinker. Douglas Murray refers to himself in two ways. He refers to himself as a cultural Christian and a Christian atheist. He refers to himself as a cultural Christian and a Christian atheist. Tom Holland, really, I guess you could say, would describe himself in the same way. And so what they did on this show is they agreed on this show that it wasn't Greece or Rome that accounts for our rich cultural tradition in the West. It's what? It's in fact Christianity is the foundation for Western thought and culture rather than Greece or Rome. And they talked about how wonderful our Christian history and legacy is and the morals and the virtues and the ethics that we have by way of this tradition, both Douglas Murray and Tom Holland lament the erosion of Christianity in the West. But what's fascinating to me 
was that neither one of them believed in the foundation of Christianity. They love the truths of Christianity, I guess the ethics, the morals, the meaning and purpose that Christianity provides, but they in no way accept the founder of Christianity, that is the Christ. Okay, the Apostle Paul was writing in response to various beliefs and philosophies of his day. And we're called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in view of the heresies and philosophies and beliefs in our day. I, I believe more and more that, that, that Christian atheism is a great description of what's happening more and more in our culture, where, where people love the benefits of Christianity in terms of the ethics, the morals, the meaning, the purpose, the human dignity that it seems to grant. They want to live in that kind of world, but they don't want the Christ who's at the base of it. Jesus told a parable about wise and foolish builders. Okay, what did the foolish builder do? He built his house on the sand, and so when the wind and the, and the waves and the trials of life hit, his house imploded because it was built on the sand, but the wise builder, what did he build on? He built on the rock so that when the difficulties and trials of life came, the house would stand. Sadly, the worldview of Christian atheism, that is like a house built on the sand. It cannot last. It will not last. Anything built on a foundation other than that that is articulated in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, will not stand and cannot last. There is no hope in life, okay, other than one built on a savior like this. So that's what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at the savior that Paul presents in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. You know, reading these, these books, not sure why this is happening, I don't, I don't think I need to change it yet. We'll just, well, maybe we do. I don't, I don't, yep, yep. This is kind of an ordeal trying to even get this off. Here, now, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'm not going to use one. I'm going to talk very loudly. Stephanie calls me megaphone, and it was for such a time as this. Lord gave me this voice. Not good in restaurants, but good in the pulpit, right? <laughs> Reading these epistles of Paul, it's like listening in to a one-way phone conversation. You're trying to infer what's going on because you can't hear the other side. And so like in Colossians 2, Paul writes, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition or human reason rather than on Christ. So it seems like the people were being taken captive to some kind of human philosophy. What in the world was that philosophy? We don't know exactly. It was probably a mix of some Greek philosophy and Jewish tradition, probably an early form of Gnosticism that taught that spirit is good, matter is bad. 
And if matter is bad, if material existence is evil, and if Jesus took on flesh, what did that mean about Jesus? That meant there was something deficient about Jesus. So what Gnosticism did, it kind of lowered the person of Jesus. Because he was incarnate in flesh, and that was a problem. And that was most likely somehow infecting the church in Corinth, and it's in response to that that Paul writes this. Beautiful, high, exalted theology. Paul indicates that to believe in a different Christ is a threat to salvation. Look at verses 21 through 23. In your bulletin, Paul writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he's saying, this is true of you, this was true of you, if, verse 23, if indeed you continue in faith. In other words, if you don't continue in this kind of faith, it won't be true of you. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed you continue, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So we can infer from that to have a diminished view of Jesus of Nazareth is to believe in another gospel. It is important to the triune God that we have a certain view and understanding of Jesus. Because any other Jesus is not capable of achieving your redemption and mine. And so Paul articulates who Jesus is in no uncertain terms through what was likely an early poem or creed or hymn. There are elements of poetry here, a chiastic structure here. It was probably an early poem, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, in order to make it easier to memorize. You know, all of this was based on oral tradition that could be repeated in various places. And so whether Paul wrote this poem or whether or not it was a poem from the early church makes no difference. It's a hymn or a poem or a creed nonetheless. And here's what Paul has to say about the person of Christ. He's saying don't believe in this diminished view of Jesus, this Gnostic view of Jesus. Believe this about Jesus. Verse 15. There is no higher Christology anywhere in the Bible. He is. He is. The historical Jesus of Nazareth is the image of the invisible God. Jesus of Nazareth was, is, very God of very God. Verse 19, a parallel thought. Paul writes, in him all of God's fullness was pleased to dwell. The disciples wanted to see Father, the Father wanted to see God. What did Jesus say? To see me is to what? To see the Father. 
If you see me, you see God. What does the Bible say? He is the exact what? Representation of God. He's not like God. He doesn't resemble God. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He could have just stopped there. That would have put an end to this particular heresy or philosophy. But as is Paul's way, he continues. Okay, at the end of this, there's really no response. He's the image of the invisible God. To see and know Jesus is to know God. He is God. He is also the firstborn of all creation. That does not indicate there was a time that he came into being. That doesn't indicate there was a time he was not. That's a title. That's a position. That's a place. An honor that was conferred on Christ. Fascinating verse, Psalm 89, 27. If you want to write it down, here's what God the Father had to say about David. God the Father said about David, I will appoint David to be my firstborn. David was not the firstborn in his family. David was not the first king of Israel. God said, I'm appointing you my firstborn. He clarifies that means the most exalted of the kings of the earth. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, which means he occupies the highest place. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 16. To clarify, this is mind-blowing. What do we recite in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the what? The what? The creator of heaven and earth. And that's true. But what does Paul say about the second person of the Trinity? What is mind-blowing, God the Father creates through the agency of God the Son, even before the Incarnation. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, spiritual, material, physical, men, angels, everything. All things were created through Him, and this is key, and for Him, for His glory, for His majesty, and His honor. God the Father, through Christ, created every single thing that there is. Whatever our view of Jesus, it is too small. It cannot compare with who He really is. Through the agency of the second person of the triune God, all of creation came into being. I've probably mentioned this to you before. One of my favorite books in the entire world is The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. It's actually the first of the Chronicles of Narnia. Who here loves Narnia? Just the, 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 the world of Narnia. Like this amazing... If you have not read these books, there's no reason, there's no good excuse. <laughs> I'm serious. Everyone in this room should read the Chronicles of Narnia. There is no 
more beautiful description of redemption outside the Bible, in my view, than the Chronicles of Narnia. And C.S. Lewis, when he wanted to give us a picture of what creation was like, he pictured the creation of Narnia. And for those of you who have not read it, you, you, you need not have read it to appreciate this. So some just regular people were, were allowed to be present when Narnia was brought into being. This is how C.S. Lewis describes it. I'm not going to cry, but if I wasn't doing this, I might cry. It's just... Before I was a Christian, when I was in high school and college, my youth minister commended the Chronicles of Narnia. I didn't know what they were. I fell in love with Jesus through the Chronicles of Narnia. Like, I loved Aslan, who was the Christ figure. I, I, just, I just loved him. I couldn't read enough about him. And then later, my youth minister was like, well, you realize that's Jesus. I was like, I did not know that. That's amazing. That's why I'm not a writer. Um, listen to the way that C.S. Lewis tries to portray the creation of them. In the darkness, something was happening at last with this new world. There was a voice, a deep voice. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away and hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes this voice... It seemed to come from all directions. It, at once there were no words, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise ever heard. It was so beautiful one could hardly bear it. One moment there had been nothing but darkness, but the next moment a thousand, thousand points of light leapt out. Single stars, then constellations, then planets, there were no clouds. If you had seen and heard it, you would have felt quite certain that the stars themselves were singing and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and sing. Of course, what's that voice? That's the voice of Aslan. What's the voice of Aslan? That's the voice of Jesus Christ. Through whom? And for whom all things were created. And then there was this regular guy, kind of a blue collar kind of guy, who was there witnessing this. One of my favorite lines in the whole series. This person who's just witnessing this, this blue collar worker, if you will, he said, glory be, I would have been a better man all my life if I would have known there were things like this. If we could get just a glimpse of the true glory and beauty and majesty of the person, person of Jesus Christ, life changing. All we would do is thinking about is think about living a way that would bring him honor and glory. Glory be, I would have been a better man all my life if I would have known. There were things like this. The Bible said, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard what the Lord has in store for those who love Him. 
We can't fathom what the Lord Jesus has for us. Verse 17, He is before all things. We don't have enough superlatives to stack up to describe the person of Christ. He is before all things, meaning in terms of significance. In Him all things hold together. When the Lord Jesus Christ was first incarnate in the manger in Bethlehem, through Him all things held together. Can you fathom that? Verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. All authority resides in Him. Paul punctuates this. It comes to climax in this statement. So he presents the person of Jesus in the terms of creator and redeemer. He's the firstborn in creation, meaning he's supreme, he holds first place. He's also the firstborn in terms of redemption. He's the firstborn from the dead. Okay? Having conquered death by paying for our sin. What does it say in 18? He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of this new creation. He's the firstborn of this new creation. Why? He's the creator. He's the redeemer. That in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, so that in everything he holds first place. So that in everything he reigns supreme. There's nothing we can offer to him that would be worthy of who he is. Jesus of Nazareth is the creator and the redeemer of the entire universe. The entire universe was plunged into sin and misery at Adam's fall. And Jesus' death and resurrection is going to make all things new. We are going to be able to explore the far reaches of the universe and the new Creation. The new creation is the Garden of Eden and infinitely better created and redeemed by Jesus. You can't have Christianity without this Christ. People want the benefits that Christianity affords, but they don't want Jesus. That is like a house built on the sand. It cannot stand. It cannot last. The only foundation on which we are to build our lives is this rock, this Jesus. Beloved, the reason we want to learn more about Him is so that we can give Him more glory, so that we can fall more in love with Him. The more reason we have to live for Him, we don't have the time to stack up enough superlatives that describe the person of Jesus Christ. My prayer for you and me is that more and more He would be preeminent in our hearts and lives. That the more we learn about Him, the more that He would hold first place in all that we do and we think and we feel that Jesus would hold first place. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we don't have the time to analyze and tease out all the implications of these different aspects of who you are, Lord Jesus, and all that you have done, these descriptors, these superlatives that, that try to describe 
and encapsulate who you are as our Creator and Redeemer. And Father, we must confess that whatever our view of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is far too small. We repent of it. Father, we pray that you would help us more and more to understand His beauty and His majesty, that all things were created by Him and for Him, for His honor and His glory. Father, help us to be a people who can't wait to introduce people who don't know to Him. Father, we pray that You would help people understand that You can't have the benefits of Christianity apart from the Christ of Christianity. Father, rather than our view diminishing of Jesus, expand our view of Jesus for Your honor and Your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen and amen.